Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Okay, folks, this is a really good episode. I know you probably heard me say this before, but this is a really good episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, joining me is Mr. Regulatory. I'll leave the suspense until you dive in. But Mr. Regulatory, share some, you know, maybe some predictions, so to speak, on some uh, potential policy changes or updates that we might see from FDA as a result of some of the things that have been happening as as part of the EUA and, and the current pandemic. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. I'm pretty excited about this one. I mean, I'll give it away here in a moment. I guess serendipitously came across uh, the gentleman that's joining us today. I was participating in Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies' recent um, Reg AF virtual uh, event. And one of the speakers called himself Mr. Regulatory. And I'm like, I have to talk to this guy. So joining me today is David Pudwell. He is Mr. Regulatory. So David, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. And we'll dive into some of the details, give everybody a little bit of a, a, a more of a, a background on who you are. Um, so sh- share folks a little bit more about your background and how you came to be Mr. Regulatory. Yeah, yeah. So in the pandemic, I guess I'll start more more recently, was seeing FDA come out with all of these guidances and, and information and uh, just trying to keep up on uh, things for, uh, you know, for my own uh, purposes and, and, and stay current uh, with, with regulatory guidances. I was trying to wrap my brain around uh, how I would go about that and how I might try to help other people uh, stay current with just the fire hose of information that FDA was putting out. You know, so I started reviewing uh, some guidance documents for myself. I'd, I'd done a, a brief video and, and, and hadn't branded, uh, you know, anything at that point and uh, put that out, out on LinkedIn and then uh, started working uh, with a couple other folks to, to, to help put together a video series. And uh, we came up with the name Mr. Regulatory. And the idea is to, is, it's to make it more broad uh, than, than just me in terms of who we're engaging with and getting input. But, uh, but at the moment, I am, uh, I am Mr. Regulatory. <laughs> And, and, and I am hoping that we can get some other folks, uh, you know, engaged on, uh, on that front. I'll lead out with just a brief disclaimer and then give you a little bit more of my background. It just to, to clarify that any statements or opinions are my own and uh, they're not of uh, my current or, or uh, any uh, previous employer, including FDA. My background is for the last uh, couple of years, I've been uh, at Convitec, uh, which is a, a global medical device company. And uh, prior to that, I was at FDA for almost a decade in a couple different roles uh, as a reviewer, as an acting branch chief. And I spent a little bit of time in the Office of uh, Legislation as well uh, during the 21st Century Cures uh, work that was going on. And prior to that, I worked in the field with a company called St. Jude Medical. Uh, so I had, had some exposure to uh, both engagement with patients in, uh, in the clinic and, and in a hospital setting as well as with uh, physicians. And so I've, uh, my, my career sort of run the gamut in, in terms of what I've seen from the commercial side of things to you know, FDA side of things and, uh, and now in more of a, uh, a business regulatory environment. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, and, and folks, I would encourage you to go to mrregulatory.com and it's MR 
regulatory, all one word, no spaces, no hyphens.com. Yep. David also has a pretty good YouTube channel. There's lots of great videos. I just was taking a peek at this a moment ago. I realized I'm behind. I haven't caught up with all the latest and greatest episodes. <laughs> you're, you're pretty busy doing all these videos. Not not as many as I'd like, but uh, but yeah, we're at uh, we're at uh, episode twenty one. We just uh, we 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 just put out. I'm, I'm trying to keep up to get back into a cadence of about two a week, which we've been doing for a while, and then we sort of fell out of, and uh, look to get back to that. Uh, so so trying to cover new and old guidance documents, and uh, and actually for uh, for the one we just did, uh, I have to give a shout out. Uh, uh, there was um, uh, th- there were a couple people on LinkedIn who had specifically asked for the de novo guidance, so I'll be uh, yeah, that's uh, I'll, I'll be uh, giving them a, a shout out and a reference <laughs> when I uh, when I announce that one on uh, LinkedIn. But that's actually already on the it's already on YouTube. So uh, we are actually taking uh, input and uh, you know from people who give us comments and and trying to actually push those guidance uh, reviews that you know people uh, are, are thinking are going to be most meaningful for them. And, and folks, I would definitely recommend you go check out the, the Mr. Regulatory YouTube channel. Just search for Mr. Regulatory David Pudwell, P-U-D-W-I-L-L, should come up in, in the YouTube search. Um, there's a lot of really great content, you know, getting into the sort of the, the weeds sometimes, but, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> if this is a guidance or a regulation that's applicable to you, I mean, hearing David's insights are really invaluable uh, so I definitely would encourage you to do that and, and pay attention because he's he's you know picking up steam so to speak on episodes. But David, I want to get to today's topic, and you talked about how Mister Regulatory came to be, and that's sort of related, at least tangentially, to to the topic we're going to talk about today. And you know, on the Global Medical Device Podcast in the past, uh, we've we've covered a few different perspectives on EUA, you know, so the emergency use authorization that FDA has had in place as a response to some of the COVID situations. But I thought we could take a little bit of a different twist on today and and explore if there are something or, or some things that we can glean or, or maybe this is a crystal ball of sorts of some things that we might see as new policies from FDA. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I no, there there are ongoing discussions as well that uh, that AdvaMed is uh, having, trying to drive some of this conversation, and um, it, and definitely FDA. When uh, when when I've heard from from senior leaders, uh, you know, in a couple different contexts, they're they're definitely open to uh, finding ways to navigate uh, the the path forward because as they've been handling all these EUAs, uh, their bandwidth has really really been uh, uh, been strained and. Uh, they're having trouble keeping up, or they will soon, even if they've kept up to date. You know, they, they, they've done that uh, valiantly, let's say. And uh, I think uh, we're, we're going to start seeing some of these timelines slip. And so FDA is really looking to try to figure out how they, uh, how they keep up with everything. And, uh, and they're open to suggestions. And uh, so I know a couple people have already provided some suggestions, but if anybody does have, you know, any, um, you know, any input for FDA or, or recommendations, uh, you know, definitely send them send them in my direction, and I'll put you in touch with people who, uh, you know, you can uh, you can pass those suggestions on to F- FDA through. Yeah, and you know, and just my uh, observation of of you know, sort of the current state of affairs, specifically with respect to EUA, I think there's been some really a lot of positives. There's been some side effects as well. I mean, the positives have been 
uh, how responsive uh, the agency seems to be with respect to you know technologies and products that that are meaningful and uh, needed in this this pandemic time that that we're living in. So that's been an awesome thing to see how responsive uh, the agency has been. But what are some of the side effects that that have happened from that? Yeah, so a, a, a couple side effects, let's say, uh, uh, that are more far-reaching. I mean, there are definitely some side effects in terms of this, uh, you know, situation where you know FDA's put out, uh, you know, a lot, a, a lot of guidance uh, saying uh, the various things that they do not object to uh, in the in the current crisis, and um, you know that that has some some far-reaching implications for us when it comes to. You know, both both the digital space where you know it's really hard, and and we talked about this uh, you know a couple months ago uh, at the acknowledge uh, regulatory strategies uh, a couple sessions uh, about the fact that you know once you get the once the cat's out of the bag, it's really hard to it's really hard to reverse this. And and I was on on a, a conference call where uh, Dr. Mizell, who who's who's one of the senior leaders at FDA. Uh, had been discussing, you know, some of this specifically around digital. And I mean, one of the pieces of feedback from, from those of us on the call on the industry side of things was, was really that, um, you know, you can't just roll back some of these, uh, some of these updates. So if you allow something, uh, you know, from a software standpoint during the COVID uh, crisis, it's not a simple rollback of software because you have all these different is compounding changes, and and so you might be able to pull out a feature, or you might be able to pull back some of these things. But it's it's not as simple as maybe I think it it sounds. And, and we do have people at FDA who who understand that. Uh, but I think sometimes from the policy making standpoint, uh, there, there's there's maybe an expectation that uh, well, you know, if you put a feature in, you can just pull a feature out without thinking about all the ramifications there. So I yeah. do expect a lot of digital sort of software development is going to be more or less permanent to, to some extent. And FDA has sort of talked about the amount of time that they're expecting, um, you know, to, to, to allow some of these uh, more lenient, you know, policies to, to, to remain in place. And, uh, and, and hopefully people are taking that time, if they're, if they're impacted, to collect the data that they're going to be able to use in future submissions. So, so I do expect to some extent, some of this is going to get sorted out in, let's say, future 510K or other yeah. uh, submissions to FDA if you are regulated. Yeah, and I think the timing of that's kind of interesting too, because uh, just, I guess it's uh, now been a couple months, FDA uh, announced the uh, official formation of the Digital Health uh, Center of Excellence. Yeah. It seems like this would play pretty nicely with, with some of those initiatives as well. I'm sort of of the you know opinion they might not have done this intentionally, let's say at FDA, but um, you know there there there's been a long uh, time push to uh, provide some more flexibility, and, and Congress has been pushing for this for a couple of years, and I I would suggest that senior leadership even at, at FDA has been pushing for this, and there's been a little bit of reticence on the part at, at the branch chief or now division director level at FDA. And um, to, to some extent, this is sort of you know pushed in the directions that senior leadership and that uh, that Congress has wanted FDA to move in, and, and hopefully hopefully everything goes well because we're we're now setting the stage for again that data collection and a, sort of a new status quo for how yeah. FDA is going to engage. And if this goes badly, 
I mean, that's, that's, you know, not, not, not great for, um, you know, sort of the current situation or anybody impacted, but, but also just for the whole state of the landscape, when it comes to digital health, uh, we will see, I think the, the, um, the situation either become a little bit more open and, and sort of consistent with what we've seen the guidances go out and, and push now, you know, this might be the new, the new normal, or if it goes badly and FDA sees, you know, sort of negative ramifications from the decisions that they've made to, to deal with the pandemic, I think we'll see, we'll potentially see a lot of clamping down. I'm, I'm hoping for the former, that things continue to open, sure. up, open up. And this seems to be the direction FDA is pushing. For sure. I've had quite a few conversations with uh, folks from quite a few different perspectives and backgrounds. And I recently had some conversations with some folks that are uh, involved on the clinical research, clinical investigation side. And and I know at first, well, actually the first few months of the pandemic, it seemed like a lot of clinical investigation, clinical studies and things were pretty much came to a screeching halt unless you were developing something in the COVID space. But it seems like what I'm hearing anyway, that that activity is starting to pick up a little bit with some caveats. Um, can you maybe elaborate on some of the caveats and you know what are the pros and cons of those? Yeah, I, I mean, some of this is, is really an expansion in, let's say, remote monitoring of, of studies. And that's both in terms of, let's, let's say, the you know, remote monitoring people oftentimes think about uh, with, with, let's say, a, a digital device in, in, you know, in your home or on your person, you know, where, where maybe there's remote monitoring of cardiac signals or of, you know, some other sort of relevant, you know, relevant physiologic parameters. But then you've also got remote monitoring of study, uh, of the study itself. So uh, where you, you might have a monitoring set up, uh, you know, more locally in the past, and you might have um, different clinical uh, specialists or people who are expert in, in, in helping run clinical studies on site, you now have a lot of those folks working remotely and, and really trying to navigate how do we appropriately monitor studies uh, remotely and make sure that uh, you know, we're maintaining safety and, and, uh, and, and achieving efficacy endpoints because you know, we're following the protocol robustly. And, um, and, and so there's a lot of, there have been some guidances that have gone out on this uh, for, for both areas, both in terms of like device remote monitoring, as well as clinical study remote, remote monitoring. And, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, in terms of the, uh, was there something else you wanted to get into maybe in terms no, of, of caveats that was, or directions? That was really the gist. I mean, and that was consistent with some of the feedback that I've heard where a lot of these studies have had to, once they've resumed, have had to go to more of uh, remote monitoring. And at first, you know, I was trying to figure out the nuances because this was a, a change. Now, granted, it is 2020 and, uh, you know, the technology uh, ostensibly is there for folks to be able to do that. So maybe this is a positive uh, change uh, and, and hopefully one that that, you know, we can work out the kinks, but one that I see being extremely beneficial um, when we're not in a pandemic situation. Yeah. And I think you know, initially the expectation was that this was going to be, let's say, primarily for COVID kinds of, um, you know, studies or things that, you know, were, were mission critical, but it, it's gotten to the point where, you know, just any study you're looking to run, uh, you, you can't just bring the entire world to a complete standstill for all the fact that we're, you know, more, more or less locked down in various parts of, uh, you know, of the world uh, where, uh, you know, where we're having any uh, virus spread. But, um, 
you know, the, uh, the interesting thing is I think the, the, the implications now of remote clinic visits and, you know, I've, I've seen a doctor by video now, I'm sure a lot of Same, folks, yeah. uh, a lot of other folks already have. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, we're starting to leverage the technology that we've had available for some time. And, and I think a lot of medical device companies as well, not just in terms of the clinical study um, you know, side of things, but even in terms of, you know, manufacturing and what, what personnel is on site for manufacturing and, um, you know, what, what we're doing in terms of, you know, other kinds of, uh, you know, functions. And I'm sure you've dealt with it from the sort of quality management, uh, you know, side of things and in, in terms of some of the clients that you guys support. Um, it's, it's, it's a brave new world in terms of yeah. what we're doing remotely that I think many companies never would have considered doing remotely. Um, and, and, and hopefully it allows us to get to a point where we can actually get more robust data because we're, uh, we're actually fully using those tools, uh, and, uh, and maybe more consistently collecting information remotely because we, that that's all we have to go on. And so maybe we're even getting better information than when people were you know, physically on site and had like a level of comfort maybe with right. what they were seeing. Uh, that may or may not have been documented. Absolutely. Uh, folks, I want to r- remind you all that I'm talking with David Pudwell. David is Mr. Regulatory. You can learn a lot more about him and his background and by going to mrregulatory.com. Again, it's mrregulatory.com, all one word. You can also check out his uh, series of videos on different guidances and regulations and whatnot by visiting his YouTube channel, uh, just go to YouTube, search for Mr. Regulatory David Pudwell, and you'll have, at, at present time, 21 episodes to consume. Sounds like there's going to be quite a few more here in the near future, so check that out. Uh, I also want to take a moment to remind you a little bit about Greenlight Guru and why we're here. Our mission as a company is to improve the quality of life. We do so by providing a medical device-specific software platform to help you manage your quality management system. We have workflows that are designed for medical device professionals by actual medical device professionals to help you manage design and development risk, document management, change control, post-market quality events like campus and complaints and so on. So if you're interested in learning more about how to build a robust quality management system via a cloud-based software platform, go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. Request a demo. We'd be thrilled to have a conversation with you to learn more about your needs and see if there might be some opportunity uh, for us to help you out. Uh, David, I predating uh, COVID by, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think the first time that I heard this, but there was, it's probably been a couple years now, uh, there was this, this, um, a discussion or maybe this comment that was thrown out there about FDA migrating away from CFR Part 820 uh, in favor of 1345. It's interesting because in current times, the, the current situation, do you feel like that that's pushing the FDA closer to that? I mean, I, I think the last time I saw something from the agency, uh, might have been earlier this year that you know expressed that you know there would be a timetable and that this is still an active initiative and that sort of thing. So where do we stand on that particular topic? Yeah, and I think that's another one where FDA to some extent is using the flexibility they have to to continue driving these longstanding initiatives. So we've seen uh, in, in in a number of these 
uh, guidance documents that have come out where FDA is is actually waiving the requirements to be compl- compliant with Part 820 for devices that comply with ISO 13485. Now, the, you know, it's a narrow instances and, and primarily to address, uh, you know, potential issues around shortages. Um, you know, generally they're, you know, they're recommending, um, you know, that, that uh, this is sort of a, not, not necessarily a last resort, but it's sort of, sort of lower down on the list of sort of preferences for which, which devices you would use potentially, but uh, but FDA is pushing this where um, you know they they they're starting to at least in terms of the the, the pandemic response recognize thirteen four eight five in place of Part eight twenty uh, for uh, for devices that are made uh, overseas potentially and uh, and aren't already compliant with um, with Part eight twenty. So you know we're we're seeing that movement. Um, you know, I think we're we're seeing that with uh, with MD SAP audits. I, it was just uh, I just had the pleasure of being part of an MD SAP. Uh, All right. Uh, audit. So, um, <laughs> you know, um, it is interesting to see just just there as well. I mean, we we already have clearly, uh, you know, identified you know from from that side of things uh, where the differences you know lie. Let's say between you know thirteen four eight five and then. The, the regional requirements for those MD SAP countries, those those five MD SAP countries at the moment. Uh, fingers crossed, maybe we'll get the UK in there or something. Uh, but um, you know, so so we're seeing we're seeing movement here. Uh, you know, I expect further harmonization. We see um, we we see FDA pushing on the pre market side as well, still to uh, you know to try to you know further harmonize. Um, you know how, how how they're operating. I mean, I just came across an interesting thing where uh, F, the, it's the FDA online portal that you have to create an account on to actually register certain products in Canada, for instance. So um, uh, you know, we, we we see closer alignment between Health Canada and US FDA, and and I fully expect that that engagement and and that harmonization to continue. And uh, you know, definitely, that's Shuren's uh, Shuren's end goal is to try to get to a place where uh, you don't have to, you know, figure out five different or yeah. ten or twenty or thirty different ways of doing something. Yeah, absolutely, and and I, um, I I remember when this topic first surfaced a while back that the one of the rubs or the the knee jerk reactions that I heard was oh the. The A20 is free. Uh, there's, there's no charge for that, but you have to pay for ISO 1345. Uh, it's only a couple hundred dollars, folks. Anyway, but anyway, uh, but I heard that you know how, how in the world can FDA dictate some sort of policy where it requires somebody to purchase something and that sort of thing? So certainly, you know, Congress is going to have to get involved at some point. But it seems like the ISO community uh, is paying attention too, because I think it was like in August or something like that they. Uh, I believe, and I'll, I'll find this link if, um, and I know I have it somewhere, but I believe uh, there's a read-only version of 1345 that's free. Yeah. Um, so it seems like the ISO yeah. community is very interested in this harmonization as well. Yeah, I, I expect it to go one of two ways, right? So either uh, the regula- the U.S. regulation gets updated to reflect 13485. So effectively, it's, let's say, Free because you, you or at least the, the the U.S. version of it, which is you know sort of harmonized, is or you know potentially you know you get to a place where 
you know, and probably the nearer term is where FDA gives you two options because this is sort of what they're doing, um, you know, maybe on the pre-market side of things, let's say with 510Ks and some of where they'd like to get to. And and they sort of did this with a Stead 510K. I reviewed one of these when I was at FDA, actually. And it was a bit of a beast to go through. They didn't quite get it right yet because all this information's in there. And, and, and if, uh, if you've got an FDA reviewer, even a trained FDA reviewer going through all of this, uh, you know, I expect you to get more questions if you submit something in that kind of a format with right. information they normally wouldn't see, uh, even if they know better than to ask about it. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the thing that I expect uh, to see is, is that we're going to uh, get to a point where, where maybe you have two options. You know, you can follow uh, you know, 13485, or if you so choose, you can, you, you can follow part 820. Uh, and, and probably that's a, that's a middle term, you know, kind of, uh, you know, solution and long term, probably part 820 either completely harmonizes or, um, you know, or becomes obsolete and FDA sort of abandons it, you know, at some point in the distant future, maybe, but, um, you know, we'll kind of, we'll kind of see, I mean, pe- people don't generally object to, uh, um, let's say using the, uh, biocompatibility, you know, standard, right. uh, ISO, uh, you know, uh, uh standards, you know, th- uh, um, but, uh, I, I don't I, know. I just think it's a good move. I mean, I, I was, um, personally, I'm a kind of a quality nerds, so bear that in mind, <laughs> but whenever the, uh, 1345 2016 version came out, I mean, it was, and I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, any company that that has an interest or potential interest in pursuing U.S. and EU and and other global markets, chances are you're architecting your quality management system to yeah. meet the criteria of 820 and 1345. Yes, it's entirely possible. It's a little bit more on the front end, but uh, but it's not. You know, once you put it in place, it's not that big of a difference. And then when 2016 came out, I was like, oh, all right, these are maybe three or four steps even closer to being in sync with one another. So I think there's been a very concerted effort uh, by all parties involved to, to, to move towards this, this harmonization goal, especially with respect to quality management system criteria and requirements. Um, and, and you can see that with FDA's, let's yeah. say, you know, engagement in standards committees. And, um, you know, I think there, there, there are a couple outliers where FDA is maybe pushing the envelope in, in directions that the standard probably doesn't go in. And so you, you're still going to see a little bit of a disparity between what they fully recognize and, and what the you know, standard ends up being. Um, but FDA has been very, very, very active in standard development for a number of years. And, um, you know, they've, they, they've, this has been part of the grand plan uh, to, to some extent is to, to get to a point where you know, the, the, the standards do uh, align with what FDA expects to see so they don't have to have, uh, you know, sort of a separate uh, standard or something above and beyond that they expect you to do that's not in the standard itself. All right. So I want, I, I want to ask a question about something that it's, it's come up from time to time over the years. It's always been a little bit of a head scratcher. It seems to have come up more often in this uh, UN, U, EU, excuse me, EUA environment that we're in. And there's two phrases that sometimes you'll uh, see or read from FDA. And the first is, quote, FDA does not intend to object and yep. then the second is quote enforcement discretion. Holy cow! Like as a a receiver of that information, I'm like, what does that mean? What do you think? 
It's interesting because, you know, FDA has outlined, you know, effectively their willingness to allow devices on the market without pre-market uh, clearance or approval in, if for, for a lot of these do not in, intend to object uh, sort of situations um, while, while retaining the expectation for notifying, you know, FDA that you're doing so, that you're putting the device on the market, even though you don't need, let's say, their pre-clearance. They're, they're expecting that you're going to do MDR reporting and, and outlining the potential need for a product recall. It's, um, it, it's setting the stage potentially even for, I mean, maybe an alternate uh, uh, pathway to, you know, to market products that um, may or may not fall within their, within their statutory authority to some extent. It's like, it, you know, it's like if, if FDA, you know, basically says, you know, we're not going to, it's the same thing with enforcement discretion to some extent. They, they basically say we have the authority to regulate it. We have no intention of regulating it. But usually that's sort of fallen in, in line with, um, you know, let's say direction from Congress, where Congress says, we don't really think that you should be doing this. FDA says, well, we can, we have, the, you know, the authority to do so, uh, you know, but, but this is where, let's say with digital, um, you know, devices and, and mobile medical apps and all of this, FDA's used that enforcement discretion language a lot, uh, where they, they basically set up regulatory frameworks, and, and they've done that in other areas as well, but where they uh, retain the ability to, uh, to enforce the regulation if they change their mind effectively, but they have no intention of doing so. And, um, and, and they've, they've made it fairly clear that you know, they, they're not planning on enforcing deregulations in these areas, and they clearly outline what that looks like. And it gives a little bit of, um, you know, let's say, stability within the industry. So you're not worried that FDA at any moment might, might change their mind because they've come out and they've clearly said, look, we, we, we plan on using enforcement discretion here. But if somebody really egregiously crosses the line, we, you know, we might, you know, we might do something about it is sort of where, where that stands now. But with this, FDA does not intend to object. It's, it's an entirely new uh, paradigm to some extent. And, and FDA is allowing devices to be marketed, uh, you know, more or less, or, you know, with, with, with new indications or, you know, uh, without, with, without, uh, without pre-review by, uh, by FDA in areas where the regulations are, you know, pretty clear that uh, this should go to FDA. Yeah. Now there is there is something that I think uh, listeners should be aware of, especially those who might have uh, EUA uh, devices on the market. Um, this is not a this that I don't want to mislead folks. This is not implying that if you have EUA and the pandemic and and EUA state is over, that that you can continue. I mean, there's still an expectation that. Uh, where applicable, that companies need to follow on with 510K or DeNovo or whatever the case yeah. may, may be, correct? Yeah, and, and FDA has laid out that there's going to be some kind of a grace period, let's call it, uh, between, um, you know, between uh, the end of the, um, of the public health emergency, which is how they've termed it. Uh, so between that date of whenever the public health emergency is, is de- determined to be over by the Secretary of Health and Human Services between that point and when marketing applications would be required. And the expectation is, I mean, we're talking about, you know, probably in the range of, you know, six months to a year, in some cases, maybe more, depending on what FDA, um, you know, comes to, you know, comes to, you know, determine in, in, a, in an area by area, you know, kind of specific 
um, you know, situation, but, but in, in, you know, that's just between, let's say when, uh, that's not even necessarily covering removal of products from the market. That's, that's sort of the end of when you can continue selling products. So for anybody who's, who's in this space and, and as you, as you, you know, would recognize, uh, you might have product out there for a long time after that, let's say, six to 12 month window, you sell your last product a year after the public health emergency ends. Hopefully, you know, you, you, you've now, you know, gone and collected some data so you can get a, um, you know, submission into FDA and FDA might even grant additional, you know, sort of ability to continue marketing as long as you have a submission under review. I can't say that's, that's going to be the case, but this is the kind of thing that we've seen in the past where, you know, FDA is going to give you a cutoff date for when you need a submission in, or you have to stop marketing but if you get a submission into FDA, you might be able to continue marketing, uh, you know, until you actually get your clearance or approval for that product. Yeah. And folks, I mean, it's definitely not entirely clear how that's going to unfold just yet. But do hear what David yeah. is suggesting that it, you have some responsibility here to, to take it to the next step, because at some point in time, that next step will be applicable. So, you know, and you've got this opportunity now, yeah. you've You've done a, an awesome service to the world by bringing your device to, to help in these circumstances that we're all uh, living in. So, you know, if continue the, the progress, you know, gather that data, you know, move forward with the appropriate and applicable submission. And, and the clear recommendation from FDA at the highest levels, you know, I would say, and, and this probably goes down all the way to the lowest levels as well. As a former reviewer, I'd give you the same recommendation. Um, you know, don't wait to come in with a submission. If you've got the data that, that, that you think will get your product actually on the market, FDA is, is strongly encouraging you to come in as early as you can. And, and some of that is, is just to get yourself a priority status because we are seeing some of these review times slip. Um, you know, probably if you're one of these products that had an EUA, you get some level of, of prioritization such as, such as it may be in terms of FDA's review. Um, you know, because you're, you're one of these products that would, would potentially, you know, assist in the pandemic itself. But, um, you know, you want to get your, 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 your place in the queue if you can, as early as, as possible, even if it takes a little while for FDA to, you know, to get around to giving you a clearance, the sooner you can get into FDA, if you've got the data you think is sufficient, um, you know, go, go ahead and move, move forward with that. Don't, don't, don't delay until FDA tells you, you know, you, you, you have to have your submission in by such and such a date. And then you find out that, you know, your, yeah, your you uh, submissions on e-copy hold <laughs> and, you know, like, yeah. I don't know, I don't expect that to hold you up necessarily, but these are the kinds of things. The clock doesn't start until you're, you know, you're off your e- e-copy hold, you've paid right. your submission fee. And, you know, we just ran into, you know, an issue where, um, you know, because of the way the fiscal year falls, if you request the pin, let's say the payment, for the wrong calendar year, and then you submit, you know, just a couple days later. Well, now you know now you 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 haven't paid the the, the right amount. So you've got to you know sort of plan for some of these things as well, and figure out your timing so that you're not ideally submitting like right after uh, you know the beginning of October, uh, because it'll be a different fee structure. Uh, so so watch out for that kind of stuff as well. All right, David, we've covered covered a lot of ground here today on this. And, and man, I, I've enjoyed this. Anything else that you think is important for listeners to, to glean from, from recent events and, and what we can learn uh, on a go-forward basis that we haven't covered? Yeah, the, you know, the biggest thing is, um, 
You know, I, I, I guess the, the, the last caveat I, I would give, uh, you know, listeners is that, you know, FDA has, uh, has been, you know, doing a, an, an amazing job, I would say, in, in this pandemic. Uh, and with all of the EUA burden, there have been some uh, device areas in particular that are impacted both in terms of submissions, uh, but, but also in terms of pre-submissions. So my general recommendation to people is to get a pre-submission into FDA if you've got any questions as you're trying to pull things together or figure out what testing to do, if you've got the time to do so. Um, but just be aware in the current situation, some of those pre-submissions are, are not actually being accepted by FDA. So just be aware of that as well as you're thinking about submission timelines and what paths to take that FDA is actually telling a, a number of submitters for pre-submissions that they don't have the bandwidth or they've, they've just sort of rejected certain pre-submissions and they tell, they tell companies just to submit your actual, uh, let's say 510K or, or, or um, IDE or other submission rather than go through this pre-submission uh, route because they just don't have the bandwidth to deal with it. So, yeah, so be sense. aware of that. Be, be aware of that. And, and, and otherwise, I would say, you know, um, even with that, even with that caveat, don't be don't be shy about you know getting getting in front of FDA as soon as you as soon as you can. Uh, be aware that you know maybe maybe they won't be able to accept a pre-submission. But even if you're early on in the process, very early on, um, you know, put together what it is that you'd like to engage with FDA on, and as things you know open up a little bit more, um, and and as FDA's uh, workload uh, drops hopefully a little bit here, or as they get more uh, resources and staff. To cover the you know that gap, um, you know ho- hopefully we'll see we'll, we'll see more uh, more engagement. So yeah. do I mean my, my strong recommendation to everybody is engage with FDA early. Um, if if you come across some issue, don't you know don't don't wait for it and um, you know just um, uh, keep uh, I don't know keep keep on keeping on. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're all in this together. We are, and. Um, you know, I, I really do appreciate all of the good work that uh, that you guys and the Greenlight Guru team uh, do. I, I I can't speak uh, highly and well enough uh, oh, for, thank you. For, for everything that you've done. So uh, it's it's been a great experience as well on my part. It's been a great uh, great time chatting with you. Thank oh, you. absolutely, David. Thank you so much, folks. Uh, again, uh, help me. I, I guess give a virtual round of applause to uh, David Budwell. <laughs> David Budwell is Mr. Regulatory. Go check him out, MrRegulatory.com. Check out that YouTube video. If you haven't checked out either, you've got some catching up to do. Uh, but there's <laughs> awesome content from someone who's been on both sides of, of the fence, so to speak, and, and has a lot of insights and knowledge to impart upon the industry. So, David, thanks again so much. Thank you, John. Folks, as all, oh, absolutely. Folks, as always, thank you so much for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. It's because of you why this podcast is still the number one podcast in the medical device industry. So share the word with your friends and colleagues. And to David's earlier point, if you have suggestions or topics that you'd like for us to dive into, send me a note and be happy to do so. As always, thank you. And until next time, you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.